to see everyone this morning. I know, sorry, dude. It's all right. I'm getting on, the pastor's getting on to me. We love to fellowship so much, sometimes it takes a little longer to get to your seats. We'll wait till Grady sits down, then we can start. Okay. Our pastor's seated, so here we go. I'd like to welcome everybody who's watching us from home. Um, it's great to see all of you this morning. Just a couple quick announcements, and then we're going to have uh, one of our elders share something with us. Uh, ladies, just a reminder, uh, the Summer Book Club is just started last week. It's not too late to start participating. Um, the ladies are going through a book by Noel Piper called Faithful Women and the Extraordinary God. Um, this week, this Thursday at 645, will be the Zoom time. They're going to rotate Zooming in person, Zoom in person. And uh, so this week will be a Zoom time. You can get on our blog or on the Facebook page to get all that information. Um, every other week when it's in person here in the uh, youth room, there's going to be a time of sharing testimonies. It was a good gathering this last week. So ladies, you can still come be a part of that. Um, just let uh, Alicia Young know and those you can see some other names on the blog. We also have the pleasure today to have communion together at the end of the service. So uh, the elements are there in the seat before you. And we're very excited to be able to come together in community and enjoy the Lord's Supper today. For those of you that are at home, we just want to encourage you, if you want to go get your elements now to prepare for that, you can do that now. We want to get a little update here from one of our elders, Mark Wilkie, and then we'll uh, begin our time of worship. Hey, church family, how y'all doing? Good? Glad to be here and gather worship. That's awesome. Um, so... God brought Gabby and I here in 2018 uh, for what we thought was going to be a temporary stay. We came here for school, and uh, as I've shared in the past, there was only one church that we ever visited for potential uh, church membership, and that was that was Gateway. And so I haven't haven't been to any other churches. And then God blessed us. Uh, you know, when we got here, and, and it was really related to the relationships here. So many folks reached out. The Mertzes, um, uh, Steve and Audrey Gillis, J just the love that was shared and poured out, it was clear we were supposed to be here. But we thought it was short term, but God had another plan, and he kept us here. Uh, I didn't get to go back to where we lived before. He kept us here, and I got a job at, at uh, Maxwell Air Force Base. And so we began to invest more time here, and, and this is our church family. And so for the past couple years we've been here, and then God provided the opportunity and called me to be a, an elder here, which was awesome. I love shepherding this flock. I love this people. I love praying for you. I love meeting with the elders and, and praying for the needs of this church. And when you pray for people, you get connected to them even more. So as I look at these faces and as I prayed for you, uh, you are my family. And so unexpectedly, something has happened. An opportunity has presented itself for Gabby and I. And so we're going to be moving away. We're going to be Going back to Florida, God opened up a door to, for us to be with, uh, in the same community with three of my granddaughters. Yes, and my daughter and my son-in-law, but it's really about the grandkids. And, and so we weren't planning that, we, and it, it just came, and we felt God was leading us to go back to that area in the panhandle of Florida. And so we just wanted to let you know that um, we're going to be leaving this area probably in July, August, to move back to Florida. But know that... Um, it is with sort of mixed emotions because we do love you, but we're really excited to go back and be with our grandkids. So um, just wanted to pass that on as, as we've shared it with folks so that you'd all know that as we transition out, you see me sort of disappear. It's not because I've left the church because I don't love you all. It's because God's moving and granted us another opportunity. So 
just wanted to let you know. Yes, thank you so much, brother. It has been wonderful to serve on the team with Mark. He just has so much wisdom and just loves us as uh, being a shepherd of these sheep. We'll have an opportunity to pray for them in July or early August. So just pray for the transition, pray for their emotional state. Um, we are excited for them to be with this family and know that God's ordered his steps. Amen. And uh, we're just very grateful for the time he's been with us uh, and he and Gabby to shepherd this flock. Well, let's stand together, church. We're going to open up with some the word of God to declare over us before we worship in song. Let's just get our hearts prepared before the Lord. I'm reading from Psalms 24. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Let's worship our king this morning.
from first chronicles this is david's prayer of blessing after they had built the temple in verse 10 it says therefore david blessed the lord in the presence of all the assembly and david said blessed are you o lord the god of israel our father forever and ever yours o lord is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. And then verse 12, it says, Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. And so when we sing these words, let's thank God and let's praise his glorious name. service and taking communion and just remembering God's body, his son Jesus that was broken on our behalf, his blood that was shed on our behalf to secure and buy back 
his bride to purchase us so that we have redemption in him and can one day reign with him in eternity and worship him around his throne. Jesus Christ, our living hope. Let's sing this. And how great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night then through the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul the work is finished the end is written Jesus Christ my living Lord. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of angels stepped down from glory wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken, I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in the promise your buried body began to breathe and out of the silence the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me Jesus shows is a in your name. 
No greater love, grace, how can it be? is our victory, God, that we find hope in you, God, we find strength and refuge in you, Father. As we just reflect today, God, on that cross, Father, as your son lifted up on our behalf, God, body broken, bloodshed. so that we can have a hope that's found in him. Father, we were deserving of hell. We sinned against a holy God. We deserved a holy penalty, God. And rightfully, we deserve death. Rightly, we deserve to be separated from you for all eternity. But God, with no way back to you, you sent your son who came and lived the life that we couldn't, lived a perfect, sinless life on our behalf. He who knew no sin became sin and took the full cup of your wrath Thank you for your blood that was poured out, God, so that we can no longer be enemies of you, God, but we can be seated at your table, God, that we can be seen as friends of yours, God, and not enemies of yours, Father. Yet nothing in and of ourselves for our righteousness is as filthy rags, God. The best deeds that we can do in our own meaningless power is nothing compared to what we need and that's the blood of Jesus Christ that covers us so that you can look on us and see us as righteous, not because of our righteousness, God, but because of your son's obedience and our righteousness that is found in him and in him alone. May you be glorified in this place this morning, God. It's in your name we pray.
go. We're having trouble with that. Here we go. Uh, 
gospel. And Lord, we're just so, so grateful uh, to you as we all uh, bow at the foot of the cross. Lord, we just thank you for the cross. We thank you for forgiveness of sin. Lord, your grace upon grace that flows day by day. We're just so, so grateful. And Lord, we want to join with our city today as, as the mayor has, has declared and the, the city council has declared today as a citywide day of prayer. We want to join with other churches, Lord, to pray for our city. Lord, to pray for the reign and rule of, of Christ to come throughout our city, in neighborhoods, Lord, in institutions. Lord, we pray that many would come to Christ. Lord, we pray there would be peace where there's violence. Lord, there's just so much in our city. Lord, so much, so many places where the gospel needs to go. We pray, Lord, that we would be willing laborers in that, Lord. And we also pray for our leaders, uh, the mayor, the city council, Lord, the police department, all those in authority uh, in our government here. God, we pray for your wisdom uh, to come. We pray that those that don't know you would come to know you personally, would come to saving faith. Lord, we ask that you would do a transforming work in our city, that we would be a, a church that is salt and light in this city. Lord, we thank you for the work that you're doing in our church. Lord, we thank you for our college group. Lord, you've done such a work in individual students' lives, Lord, as well as just growing that ministry. Lord, we just pray they would continue to grow and hunger and thirst for you as they enter into the summer months, Lord, that they wouldn't take a break from, Lord, worship worshiping you, your time and your word, Lord, that you would just grow them more and more. Lord, we're just so grateful for them. And Lord, as we've just seen Pastor Mark, we're just we're so grateful for, for this man's heart. Lord, we pray you would encourage him, Lord, that he would experience your grace and peace. And Lord, we just pray, too, for, for the needs, Lord, in church planting, just like he was saying, Lord, that you would provide every need. Lord, thank you that we can partner with them, Lord, that you are a global God, and Lord, we thank you for the work you are doing globally, and we pray specifically, Lord, for Bangalore, India, Lord, with the recent spike in, in uh, COVID, Lord, we just pray that the church there would continue to reach out to those with the gospel, Lord, with practical helps, Lord, we pray for that country, Lord, that many would turn to you, many would look to you uh, just in this difficult time. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to our church here at Gateway, and and Lord, just in every way, Lord, you tell us to pray for our physical needs, and you have provided uh, in every way for us, Lord, financially, uh, Lord, for ministry needs. Uh, Lord, we're just so, so grateful, and thank you for your faithfulness to us. And, and Lord, thank you for Grady, uh, Lord, and, and the, the pastor, teachers, hearts you've given him, Lord, the, the gifting you've given him to communicate, Lord, your word so faithfully to us. And I pray even today as he teaches and preaches, Lord, that first of all, you would open up our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to, to believe and then receive the word that you have for us today, Lord, and that you would anoint Grady's lips, and Lord, and just help him to, to, to bring to us the word that you have for us today. So we commit all these things to you, and we just pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. And boys and girls in first to fourth grade are dismissed to kids' worship right now, so you guys are welcome to head to those double doors right there. And you get Pastor CJ this morning, so you're going to have fun back there. Have fun, guys. Looks like a great group this morning, CJ. Have fun with them. <laughs>
Well, Gateway Family, it's good to see you this morning. I want you to find Exodus chapter 20 this morning. Exodus chapter 20 in your copy of God's Word. If you're new to Gateway or visiting, we're doing a teaching series that's going to last more than a year. We're calling it Rooted, being grounded in the Word. We want to go deep into understanding what the Word of God teaches and what we believe about who God is and who we are and how we know Him. And this is so important for us. As we've seen over the weeks, being rooted in the Word of God affects our own maturity it affects our own stability in a, t- a tough world to follow Christ. It affects our ability to love one another. It's what unifies us. It's what helps us speak the truth and love one another. It's what we need to be able to make Christ known to the lost. As we're going through this study of being rooted and grounded in the Word of God, we're in a section right now on the law of God, on the commandments of God. In particular, we're slowing down for quite a number of weeks here, for about two, over two months, and we're looking at each of the Ten Commandments one by one to understand what they teach us for today. A lot of us have heard the Ten Commandments as children, but we haven't given a lot of thought to them as adults now. So we're going deep into the Ten Commandments. We've already seen the first four of the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20. Those are about how we relate to God. And last week we started the second section of the Ten Commandments, the ones about how we relate to one another. Last week we started on how we relate to our parents and how we honor our father and our mother. Today we come to the second of those commandments, the one that, that deals with how we all relate in all of our relationships. And so our question is really simple this morning. What does the sixth commandment require? What does the sixth commandment require? We're going to find our answer in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. So I want you to find that. And as you look at that, you will see it is an incredibly short verse. I think this may be the shortest verse I've ever preached during my time at Gateway as we look at these four words from God's Word this morning to see what the sixth commandment So can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? Yes, we're standing for four words here, but it's still God's words for us, these four words. As we'll see this morning, there's so much truth for you and I today in these four words. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, very simply, you shall not murder. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we get to go deep into your Word. And what I pray this morning is we come to this command that a lot of us look at and we go, I'm okay on this one. God, I pray you would show us things in our own hearts and lives that are displeasing to you. That, God, you bring conviction to us where we need conviction, that you might continue to conform us to be the people you have called us to be. So would you be glorified in this place as you transform us through your word this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and you can be seated. Now, at first glance, this command is really obvious, isn't it? You're thinking, okay, do we have a whole sermon on these four words? And yes, you don't have to grow up in church to know that murder is wrong. For if you think about the city in which we find ourselves here in Montgomery, believers and non-believers alike all come together to oppose murder. You hear it in the media as they grieve the 34 murders that have already happened in Montgomery just this calendar year, as they grieve the three murders that have happened in the last week and a half or so. And friends, in God's common grace, Christians and atheists and people who follow other religions all seem to have this sense that murder is wrong and are all concerned about it and all willing to come together to try to oppose it and end it. Even this past week in Montgomery, there was a town hall meeting. It wasn't called by the church. It was called by the city of people of all different beliefs because they were concerned about murders in Montgomery. Our city council, just in the last week or two, passed a resolution calling the churches to pray to, just like Greg did a few minutes ago, asking the churches in Montgomery to pray about the murder problem in Montgomery. And so we see by God's common grace that this command is very straightforward and obvious. But, friends, the scope of this command... What's actually required by it is, I think, lost in the common culture. And I fear it's lost in a lot of the churches as well. But also the reason for this command is something that we really don't understand apart from the gospel. If you ask people in the street, why is it wrong to murder? You get a lot of practical answers, but you miss a lot of the depth of why this is actually such a serious command 
before God. So this morning I want us to look at this command. I want us to look at it in several ways to understand what it's saying. First of all, I want us to look at the command itself, what's actually being said. I want us to look at the scope of the command, because I want you to see this morning, this command is much more applicable to you and I than most of us perhaps realize it is. And then I want us to go into the reason for this command, to make sure we understand the foundation of why God says something so serious here. And then I want us to see what this actually requires us to do. So we're going to start with the command, look at the scope of it, look at the reason for it, and look at what we're proactively to do as well. So let's jump into the command itself. Let's go back to verse 13 in these four short words again. You shall not murder. Now it looks short, right? It's actually shorter than it looks. Because in the Hebrew language, which this was originally written in, it's actually only two words, not four. It's the word for no, and it's the word for what we call murder. So literally in the Hebrew, there's no you shall not. It literally just says no murder, period. So that's what we're looking at this morning, this command that's literally no murder. Now there's been some confusion over the years about what this command actually forbids. Because if you grew up on the old King James Version, this command was translated, thou shalt not kill. Well, unfortunately, kill is not a very accurate translation of this word. It's not that broad. Now, we've talked about this before. When you look at the Bible, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew language. The New Testament was written in the Greek language. And both Hebrew and Greek are a lot more specific than English. In other words, the words have a lot more specificity than we have in our language. So when we come to this particular command and we think about this, Hebrew actually had seven unique words for killing, seven different possible words that could be used for killing. And when God spoke the Ten Commandments to Moses and the people of Israel here, he chose a very specific word. It's a word that best be rendered today, murder. Now, what do I mean by murder? We all kind of have a sense of it. Let me give us a definition to make sure we're all on the same page. Here's my definition of murder. Murder is the taking of another human life for selfish reasons. It's the taking of another human life for selfish reasons. Now, this definition is important for us to understand because it eliminates some confusion by some things this command does not speak to. So before we get to the scope of how it applies to us, I want us to see four things that are not in view in this command. So number one, this command has nothing to do with the killing of animals. This is not about whether or not you should hunt or eat meat. That's not part of this command. This is a specific word that applies to the killing of other human beings, other people made in the image of God. There's a distinction in the Word of God between animal life and human life. And this is specifically dealing with human life every time it appears in Scripture. This is not about animals. Number two, this does not prohibit killing in self-defense. This does not prohibit killing in self-defense. I want you to see on the screen Exodus chapter 22, verse 2, to get a sense of what's in view with this. I think, Matt, you got up there for us. Exodus chapter 22, verse 2. If a thief is found breaking in and instructs that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. So in other words, this is a specific law in Exodus 22 for the people of Israel at the time. This is one of those national civil laws at the time that's recorded for us. But if someone breaks in your house at night and in self-defense you end up killing the person in the, in the Israel culture, in the Jewish culture, you are not guilty of murder for doing self-defense. But there's a clarification here. This is only last resort. This is not like if you feel threatened, you go club anyone to death and you're okay with getting away with it. Verse 3 gives you a clarification. The next verse that follows, but if the sun has risen on him, in other words, if the person is breaking in and you can see with your face who it is, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. In other words, if you can see who the person is who is threatening you, you realize that you don't have to kill them to protect yourself. Then in Israel at the time, you, were, you, you, know, you would be guilty of murder if you killed the person. You were only not guilty of murder if it was self-defense and there was no other way. So what's not in view in this command is the killing of animals. What's not in view is the killing and self-defense. What's also not in view here is capital punishment and the death penalty. That's number three. Now I recognize there's various views and Christians who love Jesus and love the Bible have different interpretations and understanding of whether or not the capital punishment should happen, but that was not in view in this particular command. You can't take this sixth commandment and say that capital punishment, death penalty is wrong. Genesis chapter 9 
verse 6, actually established the capital punishment and the death penalty in Israel at the time. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So capital punishment is not in view in this command. Now let me clarify here. This is a delegated authority to government, not to individuals. So if someone kills your spouse, your kids, whatever, you don't have permission to go take your gun and go kill them in revenge. That's not what this is about here. This is the delegated authority to the government to pursue justice on behalf of the people. Romans chapter 13 gives us a glimpse of this. In Romans 13 it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. So in other words, when we talk about authority in the home last week, it was a delegated authority. We talk about authority here. The government is a delegated authority to do what God has allowed them to do. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, verse 2, he carries on. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Verse 3, he carries on. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Then finally, verse 4, but he is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he's a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrong doer. So God has given to governments the authority to punish wrongdoing. The number four, what's not in view in this command is what we would call just wars. Wars to defend the nation, wars to protect the innocent from harm. God established governments to protect. Now, that's a whole sermon for a whole other day on some of those things, more that we can get into this morning. But I want you to see what's not in view so we can focus on what actually is in view here and how it affects us. So what is this command actually prohibiting then? I want to give you several things that are in the scope of this command. Again, murder is the taking of a human life for selfish reasons. So what would that include? Obviously, verse 13, get back to verse 13, the words right there for us, murder itself, what we might call homicide, would be in view here. Whatever the motive is for it, whether you're trying to get something from someone, whether you're angry at someone, whether you're trying to please someone else, whether you're trying to get the rush, whatever the motivation is for it, when you kill someone else for selfish gain, that is in the scope of this command. But there's something, there's two other things in view here as well. The second would be suicide or self-murder. And let me be clear on this one as well. The culture has kind of misinterpreted this in different ways. In the past, suicide was taught to be the unforgivable sin. It's not an unforgivable sin. Those who are in Christ who commit suicide can still be forgiven and still be with Christ forever. So that's an, it's not the unforgivable sin. But our culture swung the other way and almost wrongly taught that it's an escape now, and it's okay, and it's almost been normalized. It's not normalized, friends. It's still a sin. Every time you see it in Scripture, it's never presented in a positive light. It's never God's will. The commands of Scripture not when life is hard, you can take your life to escape. The command of Scripture is when life is hard, run to Jesus and trust Him through the hardships of life. And so suicide would be self-murder. It would fall under the scope of this command. Also, one more that fall under the scope of this command is controversial in the political world today, but it's the, it's the topic of abortion of killing a child still developing in the womb. Despite what our culture says, friends, what's in the womb is a baby. And when you abort it, you're killing a human life, and it's a violation of this command. Psalm 139, verse 13, is such a beautiful text that shows us this truth. It says, For you, God, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together, and it says, In my mother's womb. Friends, a baby developing in the mother is being knit together by God's hand. Verse 14, he carries on in Psalm 139. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. Verse 15, he carries on. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. Notice, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. As yet when there was none of them. Friends, the baby developing 
and the mother's uterus there is already has a plan established by God for his or her life. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. Friends, abortion is killing a child within the womb. Now, friends, as you think about all those things, that's all included in the scope of this command. But, friends, I want us to stop here for a minute because we can be 100% free of doing those things and we can still disobey this command. Because this command is much, this command is much broader than just those three things I just mentioned. Now, what else is prohibited in the, in the command back in verse 13? You shall not murder. What else is included in this? Well, we're using this thing called the New City Catechism to kind of guide our study over this year of being rooted in the Word of God. They had three words I found really helpful in the answer to this question of what the Sixth Commandment requires. It says it also prohibits the words, it says hurt, hostility, and hate. Those are three helpful words I found. It's what's prohibited by this command, anything that's hurtful, that is hostility, or that's hate. Now think about that for a minute. Let's start with the word hurt. What would be included in this command that would be hurtful? Obviously what we just talked about murder would be, and abortion and suicide would all be hurtful. But there's things that are much broader than that that would fall under this command. In fact, if you're reading out the English Standard Version like I am, there's a little footnote next to the word murder. And if in the little tiny fine printed down there, it tells you this can also be negligence or carelessness. So what's in view here is when someone dies because of your own carelessness. You might want to call that reckless homicide. That would be included in the scope of this command. When you don't take proper precautions, someone is harmed or died because of it. Now this is fascinating. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 8. And, uh, do we have one back there? Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 8, before we get to Exodus. There you go. When you build a new house... You shall make a parapet. Now, what in the world is a parapet? A parapet is a rail around the roof, okay? You should make a rail around the roof for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house. For if anyone should fall from it. So we think we live in a world with lots of laws today, right? There were a lot of laws back in Israel, including how you built your house. And when you built your house in Israel, all the houses at the time have flat roofs. They didn't have air conditioning and climate control like we have now. So what would people do at night? They go sit up on the roof to cool off and to fellowship and to visit together. So the, the civil laws in Israel at the time required you to have a railing along your roof. If you did not have one, if you were lazy and didn't put one up and didn't take enough proper precautions, and someone is on your roof and they fall off and they die, you actually were charged in Israel with the crime of murder. Because you had a way to protect a life, and you chose not to do it. We might call that reckless homicide today. We see this in Exodus chapter 21, verse 28. You see the same thing again, Exodus 21, 28. I think we got that one for you. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, there's a pretty image to think right before lunch, right? When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and his flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox, notice this, will not be liable. But then verse 29, it clarifies what happens. But if the ox has been accustomed to goring in the past, so you have lots of people have been died because you've not taken care of your ox here, and his owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or woman, the ox will be stoned, and the owner will be put to death. Why? Because the person didn't take proper precautions. Human life was so valuable to God that if you didn't take proper precautions, there was a chance of someone being killed because of your negligence. You were guilty of murder. So this command, again, is broadening out beyond just what we typically think of as murder. Now it's recklessness that leads to people dying or being harmed. But the command gets even broader. It also includes not intervening when other people are being hurt. If you know people are being harmed and you don't step in when you have the ability to step in, that's also included in this as well. This happened with Saul, whose name was changed to Paul in the New Testament. But Acts chapter 22, verse 20. In Acts 22, you get a glimpse of this. He's telling his own story. And he says, And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed. Now, Stephen was stoned, one of the first martyrs of the Christian church. He said, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Like, as Paul deals with his past and his own sin, he recognizes his sinfulness. He saw a person being murdered, and he did not intervene, though he had the ability 
to do that. So this command to not murder includes us not intervening if other people are being hurt or killed and we don't get involved. And with that, then we could expand hurt even further to any type of cruelty or violence, whether it's child abuse or spousal abuse, muggings, abductions, torture. We go on and on. All that would fall in the scope of this command. But there's one more way we can disobey this command in terms of hurting I want to mention. We can also disobey the sixth command when we hurt people with our words. When we hurt people with our words. Now you may be going, okay, Grady, this is a little bit of a stretch here. You shall not murder. Now we're talking about speech. Can we really extrapolate that and do that? And yes, we can. I'll see what you see in a minute. But I want you to realize that God treats hurtful words the same way he views murder. God views hurtful words to others in the same way that God views murder. Now before you think I've lost and I'm making it too much of a jump here, I want you to see Matthew chapter 5 verse 21. In Matthew 5, 21, this is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, as in the Old Testament times, you shall not murder. So he's quoting Exodus 20 here, verse 13 that we're looking at this morning, that you're not to murder. Let's, let's go and jump back to verse 21 still for us. And then he says, and you've also heard whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now he's quoting the Old Testament tradition here, not what was actually said in the Old Testament, but how the Jewish leaders interpret it. So he quotes the command, he quotes in how they had had it taught throughout their life. Now verse 22, he says, but I say to you, what's he doing here? He's not nullifying what was just said. He's not saying this command doesn't matter. He's raising the bar, if you will. He's raising the standard. He's saying, as the one who is sovereign over all, I can tell you what God means in this command because I myself am God. That's what he's saying to people. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So what has Jesus just done? He's taken the command about murder and he's applied it to our words and to our speech here. He says, whoever insults his brother. This word insult was about as close to a swear word as you could get in the Arabic language at the time. The word insults literally means empty-headed or stupid. I love it. So there's different translations, but the New American Standard Translation actually translate this, whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, will be liable. It's, it's an insult. It was a huge put-down in the culture. Likewise, the word fool here was another insult. It means you're an idiot who's immoral. So he's taking these two strong insults from their culture. You're empty-headed and stupid, and you're an idiot who's immoral. And he holds these two up as examples of words that are never used in a positive way. You don't say to one of your friends, you foolish idiots. Like, you don't use this in any way except for to put down other people, to say hurtful speech. And God says that those type of words, not just those two words, but that this type of speech is going to be judged in the same way that murder is judged. Notice in here he says you'll be liable to judgment, You'll be liable to the council. You'll be liable to the hell of fire. Now, we're not, we don't need to distinguish those too much. Those aren't three separate things here. Those are all synonyms to describe judgment. It's helping us see the seriousness with which God views our speech. That God takes hurting people with our speech as seriously as harming people with murder. Because we've got to let that sink in. The next time we are tempted to say something cruel to our spouse, the next time we are tempted to yell at our children, Next time we're tempted to slander someone or gossip someone, we need to realize that God takes our speech that hurts others with the same degree of seriousness he treats murder. Anything that is hurtful falls under this command, you shall not murder. That includes murdering in our speech. The second word our catechism uses to help us understand the scope of this command, and that's the word hostility. Hostility. To be hostile is to be unfriendly, to be antagonistic. And so within the scope of this command is, is when we shun people. We may not physically murder them, but when we shun people and we treat them with a the cold shoulder and we oppose them and we're hostile to them, when we fail to love them, God views it in a very similar way. James chapter 2, verse 2. We saw this when we studied James 
year or two ago. He said, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, into your church gathering, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes, also comes in. Now, verse 3. Let's jump forward. One more verse. There you go. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. I say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet. Now, notice what he says. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with what type of thoughts? evil thoughts, that when we make distinctions, when we show hostility to people by just shutting them, giving them the cold shoulder, we've made evil thoughts. We're guilty of breaking this. Likewise, in James chapter 2, verse 9, he clarifies this, but if you show partiality, remember when we studied James, there's lots of things we can use to show partiality. We can show partiality over wealth or race or ethnic status, or you can go down the list. There's so many things that people divide and show partiality. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. So we break the sixth commandment when we show hatred to people. In other words, we show, break the sixth commandment when we show hostility and exclude people from others because they're different than us. But finally, we can break this sixth commandment in one more way here. And we can break it, for and it doesn't even require us doing or saying anything. We can break the sixth commandment by simply having hatred in our heart. You realize that we can break the sixth commandment to not murder, and we haven't even said or done anything, and we can still be guilty. Now, again, before you think I'm extrapolating too far, First John Chapter 3, verse 15. Notice what it says in 1 John. Everyone who hates his brother is a what? Is a murderer. If you hate, this isn't even you don't have to express it with your mouth, you don't have to express it with your hands. But if you hate in your heart, it says you are a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Friends, when we have hatred, when we harbor hatred of others in our hearts, we have murdered them in our own hearts, and God will hold us accountable for that sin. So what is the scope of this simple command, no murder? It includes murder, it includes suicide, it includes abortion, it includes any type of hurt, including hurtful words, it includes hostility we show to others, it includes even hatred in our own heart towards other people. That leads us to a very serious reality check. We've all broken the sixth commandment. And we all probably have broken the sixth commandment this week. And maybe we even broke it on the way to church this morning, right? We are all guilty of doing this. There's a great book we have in our resource center called Good and Angry. And in chapter two, the title of chapter two is the, the title of the chapter is Do You Have a Serious Problem with Anger? Now, this is probably one of the best chapters ever written because if you open up to chapter two of, of David Pallison's book, Good and Angry, Do You Have a Serious Problem with Anger? Chapter two, the, the chapter is one word long. It's the word yes in the middle of the page. Isn't that interesting? The whole chapter, Do You Have a Serious Problem with Anger? You kind of read the book thinking there's going to be this long exhibition and the word is a blank page with the word yes. You turn the page and the chapter's over and you're on chapter three already. And he's trying to make the point to us through a little bit of humor there. The reality is we all think we're okay. This is one of those commands we come to and we're like, I have murdered anyone. Check, I'm good here. But then Jesus raises the bar and you start looking at 1 John. The bar keeps getting raised where now this command that we all thought we are okay on now is penetrating deep into our heart. And we see hatred in our heart and we see unkind words. We speak to family, to spouses, to kids, to neighbors, to coworkers, to friends. And we can see Pallison's questions. Do you have a serious problem? And now we have to go, well, actually, yeah, I, I really do. One author I read this week said this. He said, for all of our hatred of the murder out there, we can fail to hate the murder in here. Think of that for just a minute. Our city right now is rallying around hating the murder out there. Christians and non-Christians alike are rallying together to, to oppose the murder in our city. We can get all for opposing the murder out there, and we never deal with the fact there's murder in your heart and in my heart that we need to repent of. He says, Scripture and the Word of Jesus in particular will not allow us to hate murder at a safe distance. Think about Scripture and the words of Jesus will not allow us to hate murder at a safe distance. 
But it's easy for us to go to town hall meetings, easy for us to agree what we hear. Murder's wrong. We've got to work as a city together to stop murder, and we, we do need to. We need to, to do all we can to try to change that culture in our city. But we cannot do that from a safe distance. We have to start in our own hearts. This author continues, says, do you feel the weight of this? Jesus is saying you are not safe from punishment just because you have not shed blood. If you've harbored anger, contempt, or malice towards someone else, you are guilty. Hear that again. If you've harbored anger, contempt, or malice towards someone else, you are guilty. Have you ever wished someone harm? Or ever worse, have you ever wished someone was dead? Have you ever rejoiced over someone's misfortune? Have you ever put someone down in your heart? Then your heart has known murder. Because that means your heart and my heart has all known murder in our lives. And the reason why all of our hearts have known murder is because ultimately, not just that we've broken this command, we've broken the first two commands that C.J. taught on some weeks ago, and that we've allowed idols to come into our life. And when we think of idols, friends, I'm not talking about us having statues in our house that we're bowing down to. I'm talking about idols or anything that we love more than Jesus, anything we love more than God. And in our lives, say, idols can be anything. It can be our security and our safety. We can have idols of our identity. We have idols of our reputation, how people perceive us. We can have idols of wealth and idols of some relationship we're in. We could go on and on with the potential idols. But whenever someone comes along and they pose a threat to our idol, they say something about us that hurts our reputation, they do something that steals something, they hit our car, messes up our car, whatever the idol is for us, and the idol gets broken, scratched, dented, crushed, ruined in the community, whatever else, that hate starts to form in our heart. Because the hate starts to form, the hostility starts to form, eventually we're willing to hurt, we're eventually willing to be hostile, and eventually we're willing to harm and even potentially murder someone. We all have, our hearts have all known murder, friends, because all of our hearts have struggled with different types of idolatry. So we've seen the command, quite simply, verse 13, you shall not murder. That's the scope of it. It is vast in what it requires, and that means we're all guilty of it. But I want you to also see this morning the reason for this command. Now that we realize we're all breakers of the sixth commandment. Why is it so serious? To, why is it so important for us to take this command so serious? I want to give you four reasons why this command is so important and so serious. Number one, because every person is made in the image of God. And this is foundational. I mentioned earlier in the sermon that the culture doesn't really understand a good reason for why murder is wrong. We know murder is wrong and God's common grace, but we struggle to understand why and articulate why. This is the Christian response, the gospel response why murder is wrong, because foundation is every person is made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. CJ preached on this not too long ago. He says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That humans are the pinnacle of creation, that we as people are not just another animal. We are distinct in God's creation. We are the only thing on this earth that God made to reflect his glory in this way, to image him in this unique way. Thus, friends, any attack on a human life is an attack on God himself. Don't miss that because we're made in the image of God. Any attack on a human life is an attack on God himself. When you murder someone, you are murdering someone that God sovereignly put on this earth to image his, himself to the world. When you say hurtful things to another image bearer of God, you are saying hurtful things to someone who's supposed to image who God is before this world. That's to attack a human life with our words or with physical attacks is to attack God because you're attacking his image bearer. The Old Testament makes this so clear. We saw this verse earlier, but I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 9. Verse 6. In Genesis 9, 6. So God, if you put it there for us, Genesis 9, 6. I think we still have that one for you. I'll flip over to it. There we go. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For, here's the reason why in Israel, if you killed a person, you were executed by the authorities. For, God made man in what? What did he make him in? His own image. 
that we as people, whether you believe in God or not, we are all image bearers of God, that anything that hurts an image bearer of God is treated with this type of seriousness. So why is this command so important? And friends, when we realize we have murder in our heart, why do we need to repent so quickly? Because number one, every person is made in the image of God. Number two, because the authority over life belongs to God alone. The authority over life belongs to God alone. Only God has the authority to give life, and only God has the authority to take life. Authority over life belongs to God alone. Now, I'm going to give you a verse right now, and I'm pretty sure no one has this verse framed in your house, okay? I've never seen this verse over someone's sofa. I've never seen this verse printed on someone's nice little journal with little flowers on the front of it. I've never seen this verse on a coffee mug, okay? But I want you to see this verse because it tells us God's authority. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39. If you have this hanging in your house, let me know. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver me out of my hand. Anyone have that framed in your house anywhere? Probably not. But what God is doing here is he's exercising his absolute sovereignty over his creation. God is declaring, I am the only God, and I am sovereign over my world. I'm sovereign over what I made. And he's declaring his sovereignty over life. That God has appointed for every person a day there to be born and a day there to die. And he's saying, you do not have the right to take that authority out of my hands. I alone am God, and you do not have the authority over life that belongs to the sovereign God alone. So why is this command so important? Why do we need to repent of the murder in our hearts? Because every person is made in the image of God. Number two, because the authority over life belongs to God alone. Number three, because hurt, hate, and hostility come from Satan. Because hurt, hate, and hostility, those things we saw, they all come from from Satan. I want to remind us that this is not some just little red demon running around in a cartoon. Satan is a very real spiritual being who opposes God, who hates God, and wants to do all he can to wreck God's creation so God's creation does not glorify him the way that God designed it to do. John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus is speaking to non-believers who are opposing him, and he says this, you are the father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now, what an indictment that is, but notice this, he says, he, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning, And he has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. He is a murderer from the beginning. Friends, when we murder physically and when we murder with our words to people that we're supposed to be close to, we are doing the will not of God but of Satan. This command is that serious because when we hurt, hate, or show hostility, it is coming from the enemy. And tragically, Satan has done a really good job, especially among Christians in the church, getting us to hurt one another and following his example, not the example of Christ. So why is this so important for us to repent of and off? Because every person is made in the image of God, because the authority over life is God's own, because number three, hostility comes from Satan. But number four, because our hurt, hate, and hostility are all selfish. The hurt, the hate, the hostility that we show to other people is all selfish. Friends, God has called us to love one another. God has called us to care for one another. And anytime we speak hurtful words, anytime we harbor hate in our heart, anytime we do things that harm another person, it's all coming from a place of absolute selfishness in our hearts. James chapter 4, verse 1. I want you to see this. We studied this when we studied James before, but such a reminder. What causes, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now just pause there. Think about the last quarrel and argument you had it was with your spouse, your kids, your neighbor, your coworker, your friends someone else you're close to. What causes us quarrels and fights that we have is not this, that your passions are at war within you, that we have selfishness in our heart that is warring against us and therefore we quarrel. Now verse 2, he goes on here in James 4, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet, that's trying to get what you do not have and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. 
Friends, when we show any of these things we looked at earlier, it's coming from a heart of selfishness. So we've seen the scope of this command. It's incredibly broad. That means we're all guilty. We've seen the reason for this command that we're made in the image of God. Authority is God's alone. That it comes from the enemy, but also it comes from our own selfish. But the one last thing I don't want us to miss before we wrap it up this morning. What does this commandment actually require of us to proactively do? It's one thing to say, I'm not going to murder. I'm not going to show hostility. I'm not going to give people the cold shoulder. But what does it actually require us to do? Now, if you think about the commands we saw early on, in our study, that it does not matter if a command is said negatively or positively. The commands are always double-sided. When it prohibits something, it also commands something. If it commands something, it's also prohibiting something. It's two sides of one coin. We focus so far on what is prohibited. Murder, suicide, abortion, carelessness, not helping those being hurt, cruelty, violence, hurtful words, hostility, cold shoulders, internal hatred, on and on we could go. I'm going to summarize all that with Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. What are we to get rid of, what we've been looking at? All bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, which means yelling and slander, be put away from you and along with all malice. So that's what we're to put off, but as we keep talking about it in all of our studies, we put off a sin to put on righteousness. It's not enough to quit sinning. You have to replace the simple thing with the righteousness of what Christ would have us do. So what do we replace it with? Quite simply, the very next verse, verse 32 in Ephesians 4. Here's what we put on instead. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We replace those wrong things, those selfish things that hurt other people, that harm other people, that show hostility to others. We replace those by God's grace with kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. So instead of retaliating, we forgive. Instead of being selfish, we care about their needs. Instead of speaking harshly, we speak kindly to them. We replace it with tenderheartedness, forgiveness, and kindness. We love how Romans 13 reminds us of this truth. Romans chapter 13, verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit murder. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. You know, there's all those negatives, what you're not supposed to do. And any other commandment, they're summed up in this word. Now, this is not summed up with another not. It's summed up with you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We put off all these things related to murder and the hard attitudes that lead to and we put on instead love for one another. So let's try to bring all that together this morning. So back to our question, what does the sixth commandment require? We've walked through a lot, and here's the answer for us for the morning. God requires us to not hurt, hate, or be hostile to others, but instead to pursue others with love. And so what is required in the sixth commandment? The commandment we normally come in and go, great, I'm okay on this one. We're not okay on this one. God requires not just to not murder, but not to hurt. That would include murder, suicide, abortion, carelessness, not helping those who are being hurt, cruelty, violence, hurtful words, hostility, cold shoulder, on and on we go. I request not to do any of those things, to hurt, hate, or be hostile, and instead to pursue, pursue others with love, to pursue others with love. Friends, the reality is we struggle to do that, don't we? We struggle to put off those selfish things, and we really struggle to lay down our lives and pursue other people with kindness and tenderness and humility and love. That's why when we come to all these commands, including this command, we see we're not okay. We see we need grace. Because these commands are to drive us to a place where we realize, here's who Christ is calling me to be, and here's where I am. And when we see those gaps in our life, these commands are not driving us to try harder. That We don't read this command, and our takeaway from today is not to take this command and be like, I'm going to give white-knuckle determination. I'm going to grab one. I'm going to try harder to not hate people. Friends, that's not the answer. Because if you and I just try harder, we're going to fall flat on our face and keep sinning. The solution is not within us. Also, this command is not here. This gap is not here to make us despair. We're not to leave this place today being like, woe is me. I'm just never going to get over this hate in my heart. It's just part of me. That's not honoring Christ either. So the solution is not to try harder, and the solution is not to just despair and give up. What is the solution? 
when we see that we have hatred in our heart, when we see we've broken any of these commands, our solution is to run to Jesus, the one who never broke a command, who never hated, who never showed hostility, who didn't break any of these things and perfectly fulfilled this command so he could go to the cross and die in your place and my place so we could be reconciled to God. We run to him seeking his grace. And what is grace? Grace is receiving from God what we don't deserve. As we come to the commandments, I just want to remind us, we said it before, when we run to Jesus for grace, we're really asking for two types of grace. We're asking for forgiving grace because we've offended God with our sin. When I've hated people in my heart, I've offended God in my sin. And so I need him to forgive me of how I've offended his perfect holiness. And so we go to him seeking forgiveness for our sins. But we also go to him in his grace, not just seeking forgiving grace. We're also seeking transforming grace. Because God loves us so much, he doesn't leave us where God's plan is not, I'm going to save you from hell, now go keep hating people. God's plan is, I'm going to save you from the penalty of sin from hell, and I'm going to change you to make you day and day more and more like Christ so you can better image me before the world. And so we run to Jesus when we break this command, seeking grace to be forgiven, and also seeking grace to be transformed so that we can be more of who he has called us to be. Friends, we need God's grace when we think of these commands. So do not leave this place today discouraged, this hopeless, but do not leave this place thinking, I'm going to try harder. I want you today to look at this command and go, I need Jesus. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, transform me. And it's all as his grace. And friends, we talk about grace a lot around here because it's free to us. But friends, we get to end this morning remembering that that was free to us. It was not free. It came with a cost. The reason I can walk before God, who is perfectly holy and infinitely holy, and walk before the one who creatures bow down before his throne all day long, crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You and I can walk into that throne room and go, hey, I've hated people today, God, and we cannot be struck dead because his grace is purchased on the cross. When God looks at us, he sees all of those sins, all those offenses that should cause us to be struck down when we enter his holy presence. He looks at that and sees it already forgiven because Christ took it for us. The one who never hurt, harmed, or was hostile to anyone, took all the punishment for all the hurt, harm, and hostility you and I have done, and for every other command we have broken so that we can be forgiven. And it'll remind us often, when Christ did that, not only was our sin put on Christ, but all of Christ's perfect, holy righteousness was given to us. So when you and I walk into the throne room of God, when we stand before him, he doesn't see Grady and all of my sin. He doesn't see you and all of your sin. He sees Christ righteousness. And so we can walk into his throne room of grace and receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Friends, for his, for our sin to be put on Christ and for Christ's righteousness to be given to us, it took an incredibly high cost. It took God himself coming in human flesh, living a perfect life, never breaking any of the commands. It took Jesus going to that cross as an innocent one who died in our place where the wrath of a holy God that should have been put on you and me for all eternity got put on him in that moment. And when he cried out on the cross, it is finished. The punishment was done. He took our sin, and we got his righteousness. And to remind us of this grace that we can forget so often, we get to end today with the Lord's Supper, with communion. In front of you in the seat, or if you're on the front row behind you, are some elements. We're going to take those in just a few minutes, if you'll be looking for those. But I want to remind us of what we have here. What you have on there at the top is a piece of bread. It reminds you that Christ's body was broken on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. What you have below it is the juice. That's to remind us that the scripture says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so the bread and the juice remind us of the body and blood of Christ, that the perfect, innocent Son of God died in our place so that we could have forgiving grace and we could have transforming grace. As such, friend, this is only for followers of Christ. If you're coming to Gateway, if you're visiting with us, and you're not a follower of Christ, please don't partake of this. 
This is for those who are worshiping God right now, the God they believe in, saying, I believe, Christ, that you died for my sins according to the scriptures. And so it's for you to take only if you are a follower of Christ. But if you're a follower of Christ, I want to charge you to do two things and challenge you to do two things this morning as we celebrate. Number one, just a minute, Justin's going to play for us. And as there's music in the background, we don't want you to rush. We want you to take time to reflect on what Christ did for us. As we live busy lives, it's easy for us to forget about the sacrifice Christ makes. We want to pause for a few minutes and just silently where you're sitting, worship God and thank Him for making a way for you to be reconciled to God. But I want to give you a second thing I want you to do. As we think about what we've seen, communion is also time to reflect and ask God, God, are there unconfessed sins in my life? Particularly as we come to this commandment about the sixth commandment. It's good for us to pause and say, Lord, are there areas in my life to where I have been unkind to this, where I've murdered people in my heart or with my words? So things I've done that have harmed other people. And I want us to reflect on that. In light of that, I want to ask you to go ahead and bow your heads in, in just a spirit of prayer. Now, I'm going to read you a scripture right now. And I want you to reflect on this as you take the elements. After I read the scripture, I'm going to pray for us. And then whenever you're ready during this time, you're welcome to take the elements. But Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, I want you to hear this. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Father, we thank you that you have poured out your grace on us. And I pray now as we take a moment just to worship you where we're sitting, to reflect on the incredible sacrifice that Christ made for the forgiveness of our sins. I pray this would be an act of worship for us. And God, that you would remind us of what Christ did. And you would fill our hearts full of thankfulness right now to realize that the forgiving grace and the transforming grace that we can so boldly ask for is available only because of what Christ has done. So help us remember, help us reflect. And Lord, even as we sit here for just a moment and look at the elements and think about it and pray, would you show us areas of unconfessed sin in our life? Whether it's something related to the sixth commandment of not murdering, perhaps the way we spoke to someone this week. Perhaps it's something that no one but you knows about that happened in our hearts and the way we hated someone or felt jealous or bitter towards someone. God, you know, would you search our hearts and would you convict us so that we might be quick to repent in this time and grow in godliness the way you desire us to be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just take a few minutes where you're seating to worship God where you are. And whenever you're ready in the next few moments, go ahead and take the elements where you're seated.
Almighty God, it is with hearts full of thankfulness that we get to come together to celebrate communion this morning. To remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he himself took bread. He broke it, saying, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup and the juice and said, this is my blood which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, Lord, as your people, we're grateful we get to pause and remember. Remember the incredibly high sacrifice that frees us up to have the grace we've talked about, the grace to be forgiven and the grace to be transformed by you. And Lord, I pray as we not just reflect on it in this moment, but as we reflect on this all week long, that your Holy Spirit would so fill each one of us, Lord, that we find growth and godliness this week, not because of our own striving efforts, but because of your Holy Spirit producing when this change that only you can produce. So Lord, help us not lose sight of Christ this week. Help us not lose sight of grace this week. Help us not lose sight of you this week. But keep our eyes fixed on you. Lord, for your glory and for our joy, we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing a prayer back to the Lord of thanking Jesus for his sacrifice? A mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend. The agonies of Calvary You the perfect Holy One Crush your son Who drank the bitter cup Reserved for me Your blood has washed away my sin Jesus thank Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you for once your enemy. Now seated at your table, Jesus, thank Sacrifice I've been brought in. Your enemy, you've made your friend. Pouring out the riches of your glorious grace. Your mercy and your kindness, no, no. to live. 
Jesus' name. Father's right, completely satisfied. Jesus' name, you, your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's right, completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once you're in a me, now seated at your table. Once you're in a me, now seated at your table. Once you're in a me, now I'm seated your table, Jesus, moments to close out declaring what we've said today like we've done before. So our question for the morning is what does the sixth commandment require? So we'll get that back up on the screen for you. Let's get the answer together and I want to say it out loud together. So if we can get the answer out there. Let's say it together, friend. God requires us to not hurt, hate, or be hostile to others, but instead to pursue others with love. Father, we ask for help doing that this week. And you know our hearts. You see how far our hearts can be from you at times. So we ask for grace this week. Grace to not respond in simple ways, but grace to pursue loving others. Not just to wait for opportunities to come to us, but Lord, show us as we can to pursue other people in love. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Gateway family. Have a great Sunday afternoon ahead.